It's the 21st of July 1995, and the 16 nations involved in peacekeeping in Bosnia are meeting in London. Together with representatives of NATO, the UN, and EU, they're desperate to come up with a plan to save the other enclaves, and they need to act fast. The French newspaper Le Monde seems unimpressed by the latest finger-pointing. The French wanted to send troops into the field, the British dithered, and the White House, anxious to avoid losses, and facing a threat by Congress to lift the embargo on supplying weapons to the Bosnians, offered only aerial bombing as an alternative. After a day of heated discussions at Lancaster House on an equally hot day, the participants reached a compromise that, although it seems to have offended only the Russians who oppose any escalation, has already led to various interpretations. The compromise they reach is a warning or rather a threat to the Bosnian Serb leaders, that if they attack Garajde, an enclave south of Srebrenica, then there will be a substantial and decisive response from the international community. After seeing what happened at Srebrenica, observers feel these are empty threats. As we learned in episode three, it took just 10 days for the Muslim enclave of Srebrenica to fall. The two MSF staff stationed there at the time witnessed the Bosnian Serb forces attack, they said that buses were prepared to transport people and that women and children and men were separated. So they had a very bad feeling. We have organized a sufficient number of cars and lorries and you'll be transferred to Kladai, to Muslim territory. They reported rumors of men and boys over the age of 16 being separated from the crowds. They even heard gunshots from the buildings where those men were being detained. And although not understanding the father, I did understand. He had wanted to give me his child because he knew what was going to happen to him. MSF continuously provided detailed accounts to the media and issued frequent appeals urging for the protection of the population. All this and still no resistance from the Umprafor forces stationed in the enclave. Now, 40,000 people are scattered around eastern Bosnia. Thousands are in a refugee camp around Tuzla airport but thousands are also still missing or dead. Pressure is mounting on the international actors involved in the Bosnian war, in particular on the Dutch, whose Blue Helmet peacekeepers were stationed inside Srebrenica during the fall. But where does the responsibility lie for the inaction? And what can MSF do to make sure that peace does not take precedence over justice? And while the investigations and tribunals on Srebrenica begin, how can the international community make sure that the events of July 1995 are not repeated in one of the other Muslim enclaves in the region? Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. Research for that, we know that those people are dying. This is Médecins Sans Frontières speaking out, Srebrenica. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 4 Peace Agreement versus Justice. Over the next few days, journalists from around the world come to Tuzla to speak to the refugees from Srebrenica. Both the women and children who left by bus and the men who fled through the mountains on foot 
tell harrowing accounts of what they witnessed on the roads and forest paths out of the enclave. One man tells French journalists that he owes his life to his cousin, who describes seeing a sea of bodies. The special rapporteur of the UN Commission on Human Rights, Tadeusz Mazowiecki, is also in Tuzla interviewing survivors. We can apply the word barbarity here. The witnesses we spoke to were clearly believable. One refugee told us that he saw a Serbian militiaman walking through a village in the enclave carrying a woman's head and limbs. There are many other horrible statements. We will send all of them to the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. At a press conference in Zagreb on the 23rd of July, the Dutch Defence Minister, Joris Voorhover, agrees with the UN Special Rapporteur. He says that he fears serious war crimes were committed when Srebrenica was taken, and that hundreds, if not thousands, of people were killed. He also reports that the Dutch Blue Helmets in Srebrenica saw Bosnian Serbs shooting a dozen men. Other UN peacekeepers also report witnessing extreme violence. But at the same press conference, the commander of the Dutch peacekeepers in Srebrenica takes a very different line. There are neither good guys nor bad guys in Bosnia, says Lieutenant Colonel Karimans. The Dutch bat leader even goes so far as to compliment General Madic, the Bosnian Serb commander who personally directed people onto the buses. The Dutch Prime Minister and Crown Prince take Karimans' lead and congratulate the Dutch Blue Helmets for doing what they call everything possible to protect the population. MSF Holland's executive director, Dr. Jacques Demiliano, is unimpressed. I saw that event live on TV and there Karaman said outrageous things like the Serbians did everything properly. And he only talked about the way how Dutch Bet had in a rather difficult situation organized itself very well to leave Srebrenica. So I said, this is not possible. This is, uh, he's talking about another planet. Uh, and then I say, okay, he can't keep this up. And then in the days after, the stories of the men came out. The men arriving from Srebrenica by foot uh, through the mountains and there the non-protection, the massacre was revealed and became clear. And so at that moment, we got a complete other emotional uh, situation in the Netherlands and also in the press. The press came to, to me and they said, okay, um, so Dutch Bet did a very bad job. And I said, no, I'm not going to now blaming a Dutch Bet because you want me now to blame Dutch Bet. And that's, it's incredibly shocking if you look back at that uh, particular moment because he was there for protection. So... So that means that the way he was dealing with it was not only, let's say, his personal view, but it, it was part of the system because he's, he's a commander in a system. So uh, the system was not, let's say, restoring the balance or something like that. So all the whole Dutch military system apparently was focused on, also in, in the, the, the ministry, etc., on the safety of Dutch bed. And so there was no countervailing power, not from parliament, not from prime minister, not from the ministers, the whole down the line. So in Holland, emotions were more related to 
against or in favor of Deutsche Bank and not about what was our role in protecting or not protecting the people in Srebrenica. On the 25th of July, while the international community are focusing their efforts on protecting Garage Day, Bosnian Serb forces enter another enclave along the border with Serbia. An article in Le Monde reads, The Muslim enclave of Zepa, one of eastern Bosnia's safe areas, meaning that it was to receive UN protection, fell to Serbian successionists on Tuesday morning, July 25th. After Srebrenica, which was besieged on July 11th, Zepa, home to 12,000 people, is the second Muslim enclave in eastern Bosnia to be taken by Radovan Karadzic's forces. Just as when they took Srebrenica, the Serbian plan is to empty Zepa of its Muslim population in order to achieve an ethnically pure region. Zepa's surrender has been anticipated for several weeks, but there was no response from the West as of late Tuesday afternoon. Considerable confusion remains regarding Western intentions, particularly in terms of what they considered a red line, which the Serbians could not cross without exposing themselves to a response from NATO. As if the UN's only remaining job was to ensure that the ethnic cleansing took place peacefully, Yasushi Akashi of Japan, the world body's representative in Bosnia, hailed Zepa's surrender as complying with an agreement on the evacuation of the town's civilians, which the UN helped to mediate. We reached an agreement on the evacuation of Zepa's civilians, Mr Akashi noted. However, the Bosnian government immediately denied that information, stating there was no agreement. There was an ultimatum by Serbian forces. The Bosnian Serbs are clearly not backing down here. Again, an enclave's entire population, this time 12,000 people, are forced onto the roads out of Zepa. That same day, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia issues indictments against the Serb leaders, political leader Radovan Karadzic and military general Ratko Mladic. As day breaks on the 26th of July, the first refugees from the Zepa enclave make it to MSF's health posts in the nearby towns of Kladai and Zenica. But within just a few days, it becomes clear that many people have not made it to the centres. MSF puts out a press release voicing their concern for around 3,200 people who left Zepa but are now missing. Later on the 26th, MSF holds a press conference in Brussels, together with Amnesty International and two Belgian organisations. Yesterday, Srebrenica. Today, Zepa. Tomorrow, Garage Day. Indignation is no longer enough. It has become an admission of our helplessness. That is why our organisations strongly urge that all necessary steps be taken to save Garage Day, the next challenge, and Sarajevo. To lose Garage Day would mean losing Europe. On the 27th of July, the MSF nurse who was in Srebrenica as it fell speaks to the Dutch newspaper Trau. Christina Schmitz says they were given a weak mandate. It was mostly a political failure, she says. Another person who takes issue with his mandate is Tadeusz Mazowiecki, the UN Special Rapporteur who's been speaking to survivors in Tuzla. He resigns in protest over what he sees as the international community effectively ratifying Srebrenica's fall at that conference in London a few days ago. He's also angered that nothing was done to save Zeppa. 
In his resignation letter, he speaks of his shock when a group of refugees in Tuzla refused to talk to him because they felt so abandoned by the UN. On the 10th of August, the United States hands over satellite photographs to the UN Security Council. These pictures prove that Bosnian Serb forces executed up to 2,700 unarmed men near Srebrenica in July. Two of the photos show hundreds of men crammed into a football field, while others show freshly moved earth, suggesting mass graves lie underneath. The UN Security Council calls for a report on human rights violations committed in Srebrenica and Zepa. The US also calls on the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia to conduct an inquiry into the region. Meanwhile, MSF is discussing internally how to keep the events of July 1995 in the news. Much of the press in Holland is against criticising Dutch Bat's actions, or rather, inactions, in Srebrenica. MSF France is also struggling to get eyewitness stories into the French papers, as they're told they're not newsworthy. After much debate, the organisation decides to give the media access to the logbooks, or sitreps, kept by nurse Christina Schmitz and Dr Daniel O'Brien during the fall of Srebrenica. Excerpts are also published in MSF France's internal publication, Messages, which goes out to around 100 journalists. The organisation then hires a filmmaker to interview some of the thousands of people who fled through the forest to Tuzla. They interview the local MSF surgeon from Srebrenica Hospital who managed to escape with his wife, a gynaecologist at the same hospital. They speak of dodging mines and sniper fire and of witnessing many people brutally murdered by Bosnian Serb forces. They always bombarded and attacked those at the rear of the chain. First by shelling it and then attacking the people. With bazookas and, and rocket launchers, they tried to reduce the chain. Which was made up of little groups of about a thousand people. The final documentary is called Srebrenica in Memoriam and is shown on the French public TV channel France 2 and on the French-German network RTE. Many of the powerful eyewitness accounts are also printed in the French daily Le Monde. MSF France's board of directors agree to continue using the film to provoke public discussion about the people who've disappeared and also focus people's attention on the political negotiations about Srebrenica that were rumoured to be happening at the time the enclave fell. All this time, the conflict in the Balkans continues. At the end of August 1995, Bosnian Serb forces heavily bomb Sarajevo again. NATO and France's Rapid Reaction Force retaliate with their first large-scale artillery and airstrikes. For some, the international community's sudden military action in Sarajevo doesn't make up for the slow response in the other two enclaves. The situation in Holland is particularly tense, as more details are revealed about Dutch Bat's inactions in Srebrenica. In early September, the Dutch Minister of Defence, Joris Voorhover, is forced to admit his department has made a series of almost farcical blunders. Belgian newspaper Le Soir reports. One of the two rolls of film on which the blue helmets had captured evidence of the atrocities around Srebrenica was washed, destroyed, by a clumsy ministry laboratory assistant, 
and a list of the names of the civilians placed in solitary confinement by the Bosnian Serbs, which could have been very useful in an inquiry into the actions of General Mladic's troops, simply disappeared. Minister Volhuvi's credibility took a serious hit. He had to change his version of the facts several times following revelations in the media. In most cases, Mr Volhuvi appeared to lack current information and had to retract his own denial after consulting with military leaders. These blunders seem so obvious that it is hard for us to believe them ourselves. Strained discussions follow in meetings of the Dutch Defence and Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Committees. Two weeks later, the scandal in Holland deepens as Dutch newspaper De Volkskrant runs a story about a secret agreement between General Mladic and Umprefor's deputy commander-in-chief, the British General Rupert Smith. The deal is said to be over the detention and so-called evacuation of Srebrenica's civilians on the 19th of July. The paper reports that Vorhova, the Dutch defence minister, was aware of the agreement but kept it secret so he didn't anger the Bosnian Serb commander. The ministry launches an internal inquiry into the behaviour of Holland's blue helmets. In the following weeks, Christina Schmitz and Dr Daniel O'Brien are asked to testify at the Dutch inquiry. They're also asked to stand before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. This sparks a debate within MSF about whether it's appropriate for the team to take part in these investigations. In the end, it's decided that the individual MSF volunteers will be allowed to choose whether they want to testify. And if they do want to, they'll get all the support they need from MSF. Christina and Daniel agree to respond to the Dutch Ministry of Defence investigators, but only in writing and only to specific questions. Some of the Dutch press in particular are trying to convince Christina and Daniel to take a position against the Blue Helmets. The press officer at MSF Belgium clarifies the procedure for media requests with the Belgian and French teams. Journalists who want more information or who want to interview Daniel or Christina will be sent through to me. I will then screen the requests and check who is the most appropriate person to deal with them. I believe that Christina can still do interviews if she wants to, but only in a very selective way. Let's say for journalists of which we know they are a guarantee for high quality news. In October, Umprefor Commander General Jean Vier gets in more hot water. You'll remember from the last episode that he's already been accused of brokering a deal with the Bosnian Serbs to stop airstrikes in exchange for releasing French hostages. Well, it's now revealed that General Jean Vier actually recommended abandoning the enclaves back in May because he considered them indefensible. The British newspaper The Independent and the French Le Monde both publish articles detailing a closed-door briefing at the United Nations on the 24th of May. A diplomat is quoted as saying, No one had ever said what Jean Vier said so clearly or so coldly before. The UN peacekeeping officials were always complaining they did not have the resources to implement their mandate, and that was true. However, no one ever said what Jean Vier said, that the areas are indefensible, that we cannot defend them, should not defend them, and must leave them to their fate. That was completely new. At the end of October, the Dutch Ministry of Defence publishes their internal investigation. It clears the Dutch Blue Helmet peacekeepers of any responsibility in the fall of Srebrenica and the resulting massacres. Presenting the report, the Dutch Defence Minister, Joris Vorhover, blames the other UN member states for not doing enough to protect Srebrenica and the other two Muslim enclaves in eastern Bosnia. 
He says UN commanders refused repeated requests from the Dutch for airstrikes against the Bosnian Serbs attack. He also says the Dutch's lack of weapons and supplies made them a largely symbolic presence in Srebrenica. Dutch Bat's behaviour in Srebrenica continues to dominate the Dutch media, with new revelations coming out all the time. In mid-November, MSF's managers discuss whether to hand over fax exchanges between its team and Dutch Bat to Ministry of Defence investigators. We heard many of these messages in the last episode, and some do give you a sense of the difficult decisions being made under extreme pressure in Srebrenica. Take these from the 10th of July, when the Bosnian Serb bombing intensified in the enclave. The local surgeon had asked MSF nurse Christina to message Dutch Bat to ask for medical assistance. The hospital was overcrowded, and supplies were running low. Well, here's the reply from Dutch Bat's deputy commander, Major Franken. Again, with a troubled mind, I must state that we're not able to support you in giving actual medical aid. Although really very willing, I have a responsibility in securing med care for my soldiers. My med stocks are at the minimum. In spite of the fuel situation, the only help I can offer is an armoured personnel carrier ambulance to help evacuating casualties. I have to make one restriction, and that is that the vehicle can only be used in town, due to the fact that in case of emergency I need it for my own soldiers, which have priority. Please inform me if you want this little help. Major Franken says no, but his language suggests he's reluctant. Christina knows that Dutch Bat's medical aid is reserved for their own wounded soldiers during active operations, but the anger and desperation is palpable in her next message that evening to Franken Senior, Lieutenant Colonel Carrimans. The situation has not changed here in front of the hospital. Approximately more than 10,000 people are waiting in front. We urge you to take some immediate action. The population and the hospital are without protection and shelling is going on. The mayor of Srebrenica is requesting you to come immediately to the post office building. On behalf of MSF, I request assistance for the population. This is a non-acceptable situation. Please inform us about your steps. In the end, MSF choose to release these messages to the Dutch Minister of Defence. But not everyone's happy about the decision, as this internal message from MSF France to their colleagues in the Belgian section shows. MSF's intervention will only strengthen the UN's non-intervention position. You know my view. This is a step in the wrong direction, because MSF is becoming involved in investigations that are either internal to the UN, journalistic, or national, as in Holland. They have nothing to do with obtaining reparations for the wrongs suffered by Srebrenica's population. There is a real risk that our words will be used for purposes contrary to our intentions. On the 16th of November, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia indicts the Bosnian Serb leaders Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karadic for direct and personal responsibility for the genocide that followed the capture of Srebrenica. This indictment is on top of the one in July for genocide and crimes against humanity in Sarajevo. Hundreds of Muslims were killed and more wounded. Many lost their minds under the repeated attacks, states Judge Riyadh in announcing these new charges. He continues, Witness statements describe how dozens of people committed suicide to avoid being captured. Those who were captured, even the wounded, were executed immediately. Hundreds were buried in mass graves, some of them while they were still alive. 
The Muslim population in Srebrenica was virtually eliminated, concludes the judge. At the same time, the United States is leading peace talks in Dayton, Ohio. After three weeks of negotiations between the Bosnian Serbs, Republika Srpska and the Croat Muslim Federation, an agreement is reached. It becomes known as the Dayton Accords. The agreement calls for UMPRAFOR to be replaced by a new peacekeeping force under NATO command. It will be called the Implementation Force, or I-4. The Accords also lift the economic embargo imposed on Serbia. But there are concerns that a peace deal is being chosen over justice for the Bosnian Muslims. Richard Goldstone threatens to resign as prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia if a deal is struck that trades peace for the impunity of the Serb leaders. MSF France's board of directors raised the same fears at a meeting on the 24th of November. The peace agreements signed in Dayton represent a threat to the fate of the tribunal, insofar as there is a risk that the criminals in the former Yugoslavia will not be prosecuted. Delivery of the criminals was linked to the lifting of the embargo. Now that the Dayton agreement has lifted the embargo, the criminals are no longer a bargaining chip. Is MSF going to request that what the Security Council achieved by creating the International Tribunal should not be withdrawn? Dayton indicates that states can become criminals with impunity. Are we going to stand back and watch it happen? Are we going to ask the Security Council not to dismiss the International Tribunal at the stroke of a pen? Deputy Programme Manager Pierre Salignon is at the MSF France board meeting on the 24th of November when the same fears are raised. Peace guarantees the ethnic division of Bosnia. But peace cannot exist unless justice is done. As a witness, MSF must ask for explanations and keep on asking for them. We must not fail to grasp the opportunity represented by the signature of the peace agreement in Paris. It is just as important as the actions we take in the field. The Dayton Accords are due to be signed on the 14th of December in Paris, and MSF decides to use the event as an opportunity to make these concerns public. On the day, the organization's legal advisor, Françoise Boucher-Saulnier, writes a column in the French daily, Le Monde. If war has a price, so do some kinds of peace. Today, the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia finds itself in the same dilemma. States have not gone to war to obtain a just peace. Will they endanger a peace agreement for justice to prevail? What is happening on the ground, as our volunteers have witnessed, does not answer even the simplest questions. Where will people live if they do not consider themselves ethnically pure? On what basis and where will the two million refugees and people displaced by the war be relocated? What role will the war criminals play in the future? This American peace concerns us as both human beings and European citizens. Who is now setting the price of our lives and our humanity? Also in December. On the 1st, the UN Secretary-General presents their initial report on the fall of Srebrenica. They set out indisputable evidence that there was a consistent method of summary executions and General Mladic was at the sites where they took place. Then, on the 21st of December, the United Nations Security Council demand a more detailed investigation into the atrocities committed by the Serbs in Srebrenica. In February the next year, 1996, 
MSF publishes their own report based on eyewitness accounts from local hospital personnel and MSF staff working in Srebrenica during three long years under siege. Pierre Salignon again. It is an account that is important to everyone and which goes beyond the act of publishing a report. It is a way of saying we were not only witnesses to a massacre, but also directly involved because our patients were killed and colleagues from the hospital and even MSF staff went missing. As of that February 1996, 21 of the 128 hospital staff are missing and one of the 13 MSF national staff is missing as well. On the 22nd of March, the MSF team in the Zenitsa enclave messaged the organisation asking them to consider the possibility of returning to Srebrenica. This creates a dilemma for the MSF teams. There is a new group of refugees that is now in Srebrenica. They are Bosnian Serbs and they are from Sarajevo. They did not flee from conventional fighting or war situations. However, from numerous reports, we know that they did not leave because they wanted to suddenly, after four years of living through heavy fighting, give up their homes. The interviews that we have seen from the displaced now in Srebrenica are quite strong. They realise that they have been manipulated by their government. I think this group realises more than the others due to the delicate situation in Srebrenica. And they are now, quote, paying for the sins of our boys. For these reasons, I cannot justify that MSF does not assist these people, both by providing them with the necessary items, as in other collective centres, in order to have a basic and safe living environment, and also to let them tell the international community, which includes their leaders, how they feel about their situation and what the exodus from Sarajevo has meant. And do they want to go back now? If it's decided that MSF will not work in Srebrenica, which means not even going, because I cannot justify going when it's decided already beforehand that we will not respond to the needs, then I insist that Brussels makes an international statement about why we will not work there, because it's not a policy that I can defend. I would be happy to discuss this with any of you. I know that most of you do not agree that we work there again. But after all, MSF is trying to make the point with the people who were responsible for the fall of the Enclave and the subsequent murders, which includes the Bosnian Croat authorities also, if we are to be really fair about placing the guilt. Do you really think that they will care if we avoid these people? After all, they are using them like chess pieces just to put people in their empty areas. The only way to make the point is to either help these people and make public their feelings and situation, or to avoid them and make an international press statement explaining why. If this is done, we must be sure that the people now in Srebrenica are aware of the reasons as well. But my big question is, if MSF makes a distinction of refugees on a political basis, then can we still retain our non-political and neutral mandate? I do not see how this is possible. Pierre Salignon of MSF France responds to the request. Nine months later, I visit with the Belgian teams who want to return to Srebrenica because there are displaced people from Sarajevo there. On the way, I say, do you know what happened here, to the people that came through here? I don't want to go into the enclave. We go to the clinic in Brautenach, where we get a warm welcome. 
We have a discussion with a Muslim doctor about needs inside the enclave, the hospital, etc. At one point, his colleague, a Bosnian Serb, leaves the room and I ask the one who is left, what happened to the people who were wounded? There is silence. The other doctor comes back in. We look at each other with the team and we leave. Things were very quiet in the car on the way back. I think people understood that it was no longer a matter of doing just anything, that something fundamentally abnormal had taken place there, that people who had been wounded had been executed. The doctor's silence told us what had happened to them. In fact, I said to myself that I'd been allowed to go because perhaps it suited everyone for the visit to go ahead and calm things down to some extent. In the end, the tragedy of July 1995 is still too strong in everyone's minds and the idea is abandoned. Getting to the truth of what happened in that awful month in Srebrenica is proving to be no simple matter. International investigators examining the mass graves there have already come up against attempts to conceal evidence and MSF voices their concern. Plus, Mladic and Karadic have still not been arrested, despite being indicted. Even still, the results of the investigation are presented to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia on the 4th of July 1996. They give tangible evidence of premeditated crimes and direct participation by General Mladic. In court, the Dutch Blue Helmets give witness statements which only reinforce their passive attitude in the face of the Bosnian-Serb atrocities. During this hearing, the former Dutch Chief of Staff accuses the French authorities of having forced General Jean Vier to cancel planned airstrikes before the enclave was captured. With all this evidence and more before them, the tribunal issues international arrest warrants for Radovan Karadic and Ratko Mladic on the 9th of July. This whole process has taken a year, and it's now the 11th of July 1996. On the anniversary, several leading figures in MSF published columns in the Belgian and French media condemning the lack of progress towards establishing clear political responsibility for the UN's failure to protect the population. The United Nations allowed the crimes to be committed without intervening, they write in the French paper La Croix. They add that the Dutch Blue Helmets have simply become auxiliaries for the ethnic cleansing practiced by the Serbian militiamen. For the victims of Srebrenica, justice is not a luxury. Nor is it a form of vengeance, but an essential step before reconstruction can take place and people can turn to the future. It is also the only way of repairing a society that has been broken and torn apart. Finally, Asking the international community for justice is the only way to prevent states from building peace in Bosnia on the basis of criminals going unpunished. The articles are particularly critical of General Jean Vier, the French commander of the Blue Helmets in Bosnia. They ask why France hasn't launched its own parliamentary commission to investigate their actions during the fall. But it will be another four years and a lot of hard work before France sets up its own parliamentary inquiry. Next time on MSF Speaking Out, Srebrenica. Justice is slow to come, and still many of the nations involved are not taking responsibility for their country's actions in the enclave. After a year of targeting the Dutch, the focus moves to France. With accusations of covert meetings and secret deals to free French hostages, 
MSF France puts pressure on the French Parliament to investigate the nation's role in the fall of Srebrenica. But how much should the organisation direct proceedings? And is it possible for MSF to ignore the global context that led to the abandonment and massacre of a population they worked among? It is our question, and also the question of the people of Srebrenica, who was responsible? Because until today we don't know. The MSF Speaking Out Srebrenica podcast is based on an original MSF study called MSF and Srebrenica 1993-2003, written by Laurence Binet. It's part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Martin Solinier and Sandy McKee. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Daniela Bellos-Stag and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Jacques Demiliano. To read the full report and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.